Thank you, um, Josh and Heidi, for sharing that powerful testimony um, for our Defiant Faith Challenge. Thank you for reminding us this morning that indeed God's mercies are new every morning. God gives us mercies today to meet today's burdens. Mercies that God gives today are not designed to carry burdens that may come tomorrow. Jesus says, if new trouble comes tomorrow, new mercies will come tomorrow. So don't deal with today's problems with today's strength. Today has enough trouble of its own. So today God will give you provision for today's needs. Today God will give you peace for today's problems. Today God will give you hope for today's despair. Today God will give you light for today's darkness and today comfort for today's pain. Thank you for reminding us of that powerful truth. And so church, I want to continue to encourage and challenge all of us to go before the Lord and see what he might say to us and how to respond to what we might do to live more generously. Um, this morning, we continue our sermon series. Actually, we're coming to a close uh, for our sermon series, The Unseen Battle. Uh, for some of you, you're sort of glad that we're uh, done with this series, and others of you uh, are a little bit sad. And Yep, I get a thumbs down from uh, CC up here. Um, uh, we will not go another, I don't know, the last time I preached on this was like three, four years ago. We're not going to go another three, four years before I tackle this topic again, because I think it is that critical, that important for followers of Jesus to know these truths. So uh, today we're going to talk about two things, actually. The title is Battle Together, but we're also going to talk about prayer. Prayer and the role of prayer in spiritual warfare. One of my favorite stories in all the scripture is, and I tell this story, I think about once a year. Uh, the evil king of Aram is trying to raid Israel. But he has a small problem, and that is God is revealing to prophet Elisha what the king of Aram is wanting to do. Uh, one of his advisors actually says to the king of Aram, Elisha tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. The raids against Israel could never succeed as long as Elisha kept prophesying. Elisha had to go. Problem is, Elisha proved very elusive to the king of Aram. Well, one day, the king of Aram finds out where Elisha is. He finds out that he is in the city of Dothan. So he gathers his fiercest army of warriors, horses, chariots, and he goes to Dothan, and he surrounds the city of Dothan where Elisha is. One morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, walks outside, and he sees hundreds, if not thousands, of fierce warriors with horses and chariots completely surrounding the city. His servant panics, of course, goes to Elisha, who's sound asleep, wakes him up, tells him about the situation. When Elisha walks outside, he assesses the situation and offers one of the strangest statements in all of Scripture. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 16, Elisha says to his servant, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. They're surrounded by a vast army of professional killers. Elisha and his servant are prepared for breakfast, not for war. 
But Elisha assures the young man that the two of them had the upper hand. And as the story unfolds, we see what Elisha meant because here is what Elisha does. And you know this. I tell you this about once a year. Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes. And when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Church, I'm going to tell you something. Prayer is the difference between seeing with our physical eyes and seeing with our spiritual eyes. Let me say that again. Prayer is the difference between seeing with our physical eyes and having the ability to see with our spiritual eyes. For a moment to Elisha's servant, the invisible world became visible. Behind Aram's bloodthirsty army on the hills were horses and chariots of fire, God's heavenly forces ready to fight supernaturally for the servants of God. This story in some ways sums up what we've been talking about in this sermon series. We said that the Bible just assumes that there is an invisible world that is just as real as the visible world. And what happens in the invisible world directly impacts what happens in the visible world. The invisible world, church, and the visible world intersect. And do you realize that we live in the intersection? We are involved in an unseen battle, cosmic conflict, that has eternal implications for your soul, for my soul, and soul of every man, woman, and child that walks on this planet. Our anchoring text has been Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. And we've said that the Christian life is a fight, it's a battle. The world is not a playground, it's a battlefield. But this battle is not with flesh and blood. It's not with circumstances, with people, organizations, systems, and institutions. Listen to me. If you think that the battle is with flesh and blood, you will think that there are someone that you're supposed to fight against and not fight for. If you think that the problem is just your spouse, and not the powers and principalities, you will think that your spouse is someone you're supposed to fight against and not fight for. The battle is not with flesh and blood. Battle is with powers and principalities. The good news, of course, is that Satan is a defeated foe. Can I get an amen? Jesus destroyed the works of the devil, Colossians chapter 2. We are victors in Christ who fight from victory and not for. And we have the power and resources to resist Satan and other demonic attacks. Then we talk more specifically, of course, about the enemy and the nature of our battle. We talked about how the battle is within our minds. The battlefield is for our minds because what we believe affects our emotions, which affects our behavior. We become what we believe. We do. We become what we believe. This is why it's so critical to be grounded in what? In truth. Whatever is true, lovely, pure, honorable, think on these things. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Fill your minds with truth, church. Because if it doesn't align with truth about God, truth about you, truth about others, truth about life, you know where the source of that is. Discard it. Fill your mind with truth. Then for the last three weeks, of course, we looked at the various armor that God has given us to equip us for this battle. 
And we were told by Scripture that we need to put this on, put on the armor of God to experience in daily living the victory that we already possess. And these various armor present who? Represents Christ. They represent the Lord Jesus Christ. And putting on the armor of God is putting on Christ, not just a salvation, but every single day. Belt of truth, belt uh, of righteousness, feet fitted with the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. Um, anyone used the sword of the Spirit this week? Anybody? Anybody? The Word of God? I had to. I had to. This is why I said last week, if you're not certain of your position in Christ and your mind is not filled with Scripture and you don't know God's Word well enough to quote it, you're going to have trouble in spiritual warfare. So let me tell you really quick, three times where this happened. One day I was just doing whatever I was doing, and all of a sudden, guess what popped into my mind? A picture, an image of something that I saw that Satan used to tempt me. Anybody happened before? It's like he's got a file drawer, right, of things that we've done, we've seen in the past, and out of nowhere, boop, in our minds. What do you do? You could just sit there and meditate on it, or you can do what? Do what Jesus in Matthew 4, take out the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and say, it is written. It is written. In Christ, I'm holy and blameless and free from all condemnation. Take out the sword of the Spirit. Here's another uh, example. Parents, you might, not be, you might be able to relate. I don't know where sometimes I'll have just this dreadful thought that something terrible is going to happen to one of my kids. Like, just out of nowhere, right? And all of a sudden, my heart starts beating fast. It's just out of nowhere. This dreaded thought that something terrible is going to... Where does that come from, Right? So what did I do? I didn't just sit there and do nothing. I took out the sword of the Spirit. Said, it is written, God is our sun and shield. He gives grace and glory. He will not withhold any good from those who love him. Right? Right? One more. One more example. Just walking about this day. And all of a sudden I had this thought, Peter, you're not enough. You're not doing enough. You're not good enough pastor. You're not doing enough as a father. You're not doing enough as a husband. You're not doing enough as a friend. You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. You're not doing enough. I didn't just sit there. I took out the word took out the sword of the Spirit, and I say, it is written, I'm his beloved, and he is my Lord. He takes delight in me, and he approves of me. Church, I'm telling you, you need to know the word of God. This is your weapon in spiritual warfare. Fill your mind, saturate your mind with scripture. I can't wait to January when we begin an all-year-long initiative on living in the word, and we're going to hear more about that. So today, as we come... We're going to finish Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 20 as we round out our sermon series on the unseen battle. Uh, I'm just going to give you a heads up real quick. Today is going to be a little bit uncomfortable for those of us that came from really traditional backgrounds, okay? Today's going to be a little, I'm going to stretch, I'm going to challenge you a little bit. The charismatic folks among us will love today. But those of us that come from a little bit more traditional backgrounds, right? If you're Baptist, I'm hoping that you'll be converted to a Baptocostal, I think is what they call it, okay? So Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, here we go. And pray in the Spirit on all occasion with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Verse 19, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The grammar here is very instructive. What do I mean? There is no break in the original language between verse 17 and 18. So track with me here. 
Paul just talked about the, the armor of God and putting on the armor of God. And in verse 17, he talks about what? The helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, right? So what's happening here is there's no break grammatically, which means he's talking about helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, and he moves seamlessly to talking about prayer. Why is that important? Most people talk about the armor of God as six pieces. And then there's prayer, and it's somewhat related to spiritual warfare. I think what Paul is saying is prayer is the seventh armor and maybe the most important armor that you might not be aware of. See, check with me here. To this point, Paul has said, get dressed because the enemy is coming, right? So he lists all the armor, of which he mentions the sword of the Spirit last. And by the way, the sword, as I mentioned last week, is the only offensive weapon to do hand-to-hand combat in this battle. I think what Paul is saying is this. What Paul is saying is, God has given you all these things to defend yourself, but don't just sit there in a defensive posture. You got the sword. You've also been given what? He says, prayer. 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 Let me say something that's paradigm shifting for most of us, okay? And this is where I'm going to go today. Spiritual warfare isn't just about defending ourselves against the enemy's attacks. The text is actually calling us to action, to invade enemy territory. That's what prayer is. Paul is saying, don't just take on a defensive posture, although that's very important. He says, take the sword and take prayer and invade enemy territory. That's why he prays what? He says, pray that I might fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. He says, prayer is that weapon that you use to bring people from kingdom of darkness into kingdom of light. Prayer is what you use to set captives free from bondage to addictions. Prayer is what you use to tear down strongholds that plague our marriages. Prayer is what we have been called to, to go on the offensive and take the battle to the enemy. Totally different mindset, isn't it? Prayer. Prayer. This is a major paradigm shift. Listen, prayer is not about giving God a wish list, okay? Prayer is not about letting God know your will. It's about completely submitting yourself to his will. In prayer, we die to ourselves. Prayer is communion with God. Deep communion with the creator of the universe where we deepen and nurture our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now we talked about a putting on the armor as God, putting on Christ. Prayer is that thing that will deepen and nurture our relationship with Jesus Christ to be protected at all times against the enemy's attacks. But Paul is reminding us, church, listen, not just to wear the armor, but to wield it through prayer. This is, this is paradigm shifting. Prayer is just not, it's not just a way to protect ourselves from the enemy's attacks. In other words, a defensive thing. There needs to be a sense in which we realize prayer is the God-ordained means by we, which he releases his supernatural power for us to push back the forces of darkness. Prayer is the supernatural means by which God releases his power So that bondage is broken. So that strongholds are torn down. So that old habits are discarded. So that people become courageous and bold. So that walls between believers are broken down. 
so that relationships are restored. Prayer is the means by which we invade enemy territory and invade the kingdom of darkness and wreak havoc on the enemy's plans to steal, kill, and destroy. This is what prayer is. You want to fight darkness? Pray. You want to push back powers and principalities? You pray. You want to fight against evils of principalities of racism? Do you not realize that activism alone is not enough? Activism is not enough. Activism doesn't mean a darn thing if you and I don't pray. You know, when I look around and see all the destruction, devastation, lives broken, I get so mad. I get so angry at the enemy. I frankly wish <laughs> that the enemy had a physical manifestation so, so I can get it on with him. But he doesn't. He does not. He does not have flesh and blood. He uses flesh and blood, but he does not. He's a spiritual enemy who uses spiritual means, which means what? I can't fight any other way but through spiritual means. How do you fight a spiritual enemy? Through spiritual means. You get on your knees and you pray, Christian. God, find us on our knees. Because when you know that when we get on our knees, you stretch out your powerful right hand. God, find us on our knees. Because when we get on our knees, you stretch out your powerful right hand. God releases, unleashes his power where prayer prevails. Listen to me. This, the enemy knows this. Do you understand that, Christian? He knows that this is what God uses. That's why he'll sabotage our primary weapon. This is why prayer is so hard. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Prayer is spiritual warfare. Satan knows that intercessory prayer is our most powerful strategic weapon. So he's going to do everything to make sure that the people of God are not praying. Because he knows better than anybody else that the only ways that his plans will be thwarted is when the people of God get on their knees and pray. When was the last time you actually thought about that? It's not just that you're easily distracted. It's not just about you being too busy, although the enemy loves using that. It's not just about you not being disciplined enough. It's not just about you going, well, you know, just some people are good at it. If you think that, then you are trying to fight against flesh and blood. The reason why most of us don't pray or struggle with consistent prayer life is that you have an enemy. I have an enemy who is doing everything that he can to keep us from praying. Prayer is difficult because of spiritual warfare. Let me say that again. Prayer is difficult because of spiritual warfare. The enemy hates it. It is our most strategic weapon in this unseen battle. Prayer is the difference between you fighting for God and God fighting for you. Prayer is the difference between you fighting for God and God fighting for you. Secret prayer is our secret weapon. There is supernatural power that only comes through prayer that doesn't come any other way. There is a connection between our prayers and the unleashing, un, uh, unleashing of God's supernatural powers that has direct impact on the earthly physical realm. Exodus 17 there are a number of examples I could point to. 
Exodus 17, the Israelites are encountering their first opposition, you know this, while wandering in the desert. The Amalekites, a group of nomadic raiders, attack the people of Israel. Do you remember what happens? Moses says to Joshua, Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. And then he says, tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. What Moses is saying to Joshua is this, we're both going to battle tomorrow, Joshua. Me with prayer and you with your men on the battlefield. Exodus 17, 11. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. There is a connection between our prayers and the unleashing of God's supernatural powers by the way i just you know when i was looking at this text you guys know moses didn't put his hands down because he just didn't want to pray he let his hands down because he was tired so you know he had aaron and her come but i was thinking i'm like the enemy didn't care that moses was tired he doesn't care that you and i are tired that you and i are weary There are other passages that I could point to where prayer of God's people had direct impact on God moving supernaturally in the physical realm. But you know this verse, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins and will restore their land. There is a connection between prayer and the unleashing of God's supernatural power. If you go, Peter, how does that work? I don't know. There are lots of things about the sovereignty of God and the free will of human beings that I don't know about, but what I know is this. Bible doesn't tell us that we have to be able to explain or understand why he tells us to do something before we do it. And God simply says, pray. Pray, because when you pray, I will move supernaturally. So three truths about prayer and spiritual warfare, real quick. And then I'll talk about three attributes, the kind of prayer that unleashes God's power. Three truths about prayer and spiritual warfare. Here's the first one. Prayer has a direct impact on spiritual warfare. Prayer has a direct impact on spiritual warfare. We can look at a number of places in the Gospels. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 29 is one of these stories where a man brings his son who is demon-possessed. The disciples do everything possible to cast out the demon. They can't. Jesus comes back from wherever he was and he sees what's going on. They say, we, can't, we don't know what to do. And Jesus says what? Mark chapter 9, verse 29. This kind can come out only by what? Prayer and fasting. Jesus, there's a direct impact between prayer and spiritual warfare. By the way, you, you notice in the Gospels that when Jesus cast out demons and cowards, demons, there's no fanfare. There's no tug of war. There's no, you notice that? Even in this context, Jesus simply says, get the heck out of there. And the demon obeys. The demons are saying things like, don't cast us out before, before the appointed time. The demons are freaked out when they ever encounter Jesus. Why? Because they very well know that they're standing in front of someone who has all authority, right? Now check this out, church. Do you ever think about this? Do you realize that the same authority Jesus has resides in you? Come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. Do you realize the same authority that Jesus had? Jesus, I've given you. You and me. 
You and I have access to this power, which is why Paul begins this entire section with what? Be strong in his might and in his power. Come on, somebody. You and I have the same authority. What? In us? Do you know what his secret was? What was the secret of Jesus' power? You know, I know, I could, go and, uh, I could go 10 minutes on this. Everywhere you look in the Gospels, what was the secret of Jesus' power? The fact that he was God? No. Mark, uh, Matthew 14, 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on a mountain by himself to what? Pray. Mark 1, 35, before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place too. Pray. Luke 6, 12. One day soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. Jesus never used his God card. He what? Prayed. His prayerfulness was tied to his power. You want to walk in spiritual power? You have to pray. I have to pray. Prayer has direct impact on spiritual warfare. Second truth, prayer is a critical component in the deliverance of people who are undergoing spiritual attack. Prayer is critical in the deliverance of people who are undergoing spiritual attack. Remember this fact that Jesus tells Peter, <laughs> Peter, Satan asked, asked me to sift you this week, right? In Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus says what? But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Let me ask you something. Do you know someone right now who's struggling with their faith? Pray. Do you know someone right now who's doubting God's intentions and God's heart? Pray. Do you know someone who's really struggling to trust God right now? You do what? Pray. Pray for them. Pray for them. Third, power falls where prayer prevails. Power falls where prayer prevails. Whenever God's supernatural power is evident by signs, wonders, and transformed lives, and doors open that no one can explain, I can guarantee you that somewhere, someone has been praying. The early church knew the power of prayer, didn't they? I mean, again, what were they doing when the Spirit fell like tongues of fire from heaven? Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. What are they doing when thousands and thousands are coming to know Jesus and joining the community? Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. I could do this all day. Book of Acts is filled with these. One more. Acts chapter 9, verse 10. Peter went up on the roof to pray. Why is that important? That's when he gets the vision for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. Prayer. Prayer. Power falls where prayer prevails, church. Um, when I was planning this church, you know what was really, like, popular? Everybody was saying, we want to be a New Testament kind of church. We want to be an Acts kind of church. New Testament church is a praying church. I don't know what they're talking about. New Testament church is a praying church. Let me be really clear. This is not a church that has prayer meetings. This is not a church that has a few prayer warriors. I'm thankful for those in our church that prays. A praying church is a church that is consistently, intentionally, strategically, and tenaciously gathering together for prayer. 
The kind of ways in which God moved in the book of Acts doesn't happen because people of God get together once a month to pray. It happens when the people of God constantly, consistently, strategically gather to pray. Again, I'm also really excited about the Living Prayerfully Challenge in January. I want you to know, along with my preaching on this series, we are going to journey for 30 days of fasting and prayer. We're working on that right now, 30 days 30 days. We're going to ask all of you to sign up so that we have an unbroken chain for 30 days in which we will intercede for our church, for our city, and for the nation and the world. Specific kind of prayer that brings the kind of results that we've seen in the book of Acts, it's right here in Ephesians. Let me just quickly go over three attributes of prayer then that moves the heart of God. First is that it's consistent. You notice what Paul says? On all occasions, with all kinds of prayers, always, always, always. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without what? Ceasing, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The kind of prayer that brings supernatural results and deliverance is characterized by, listen, consistency, consistency, consistency. Think of prayer as a constant communion with God, church. Constant communion with God. Uh, it was life-transforming for me to pick up this book. By the way, first two people to uh, uh, email or whatever our church, as soon as service is over, you get a copy of these two books. Okay? The Practice of the Presence of God, written by Brother Lawrence, a monk who basically joined a monastery, and basically his entire posture was, how can I fill my entire day with the realization of the presence of God? So he said, I'm, while I'm doing dishes, I'm going to do it while I'm talking to God. While I'm raking the grounds, I'm going to do it while I'm talking to God. No matter what I do throughout the day, I'm going to fill that time with an awareness of the presence of God. Prayer is constant communion with God. And shift your mind to, to see prayer not just as set times, although that's critically important, but out of that set times, it results in constant communion with God. I can't talk too much about this today because we're going to cover this in, in January. Four really quick, quick, quick practical uh, uh, applications. Learn to incorporate prayer into everyday chores. Let your everyday activity become acts of worship by turning them into prayer. Folding your laundry, pray. Cleaning the bathroom, pray. Going for walks, pray. Pray and incorporate your everyday chores. Just talking to God. Secondly is this, pray while you wait. Someone did this, uh, did this study and they found out that an average human being waits two years in line, okay, and 38 hours a year in traffic. Turn your car into a prayer closet, Christian. While you're waiting in line, pray. Third, sing songs of praise. James 5.13, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Worship and singing is a vital act of prayer. And fourth, real quick, is listen. Just listen. You don't have to talk all the time. Listening in silence and solitude is one of the most powerful ways that you can pray, church, and commune with God. Contemplate the nearness of God. Trust that he's your constant companion. Don't monopolize your dialogue with God. Learn to listen and be attentive to what the Spirit might say. So first is consistent. Second, the kind of prayer that brings about this move of God is that it's persistent. It's persistent. Paul says, be alert and pray. Be alert literally means without sleep. Without sleep. We're talking all night of prayers. When I was studying this, you know what I... I, I was reminded, I was transported back to my college days when me and a group of people literally did all-nighter prayers. We stayed up all night 
praying. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's the kind of prayer that says, God, I will not take no for an answer. It persists and perseveres in prayer. You endure. You don't give up. If you're like me, you've had this experience. You pray for about 10 minutes and all of a sudden you get distracted. All of a sudden your prayers feel like you're just hitting a ceiling. Anybody? Anybody? And the Bible says that's what? It's not just accidental. That's the enemy that's trying to distract you. So learn to pray through. Learn to pray through. Learn to pray through. Demonic forces come to attention when people of God get into God's word, but they shudder when God's people begin to pray. Learn to pray through. Learn to pray through. The reasons why prayer doesn't come easily for us. We have enemies who want to make it difficult. Remember that. Persist in prayer, Christian persist in prayer we have to break through the ceiling let me just read this real quick elizabeth elliot elizabeth elliot wrote this following about prayer and I've, I've, i've kept this this is such a powerful reminder to me when i think about persistent prayer she says people who ski i suppose or people who happen to like skiing who have time for skiing who can afford to ski and who are good at skiing Recently, I found that I often treat prayer as though it were a sport like skiing. Something you do if you feel like it. Something you do if you like it. Something you do in your spare time. Something you do if you could afford the trouble. Something you do if you're good at it. But prayer is not a sport. It's work. Prayer is no game. Prayer is the opposite of leisure. It's something to be engaged in, not indulged in. It's a job you give priority to. It's performing when you have energy left. It's it's performing when you have energy left for nothing else. Pray when you feel like praying, someone has said. No, pray when you don't feel like praying. Pray until you do feel like praying. If we pray only at our leisure, that is at our own convenience, what can, can we be true disciples? Jesus said, anyone who wants to follow me must put aside his own desires and conveniences, Luke 9, 23. In the wrestling of a Christian in prayer, our fight is not against a physical enemy. It's against organizations and powers that are spiritual. We are up against unseen power that controls this dark world and spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. Seldom do we consider the nature of our opponent, and that is to his advantage. When we do recognize him for who he is, however, we have an inkling as to why prayer is never easy. It's the weapon that the unseen power dreads most. And if he can get us to treat it as casually as we treat a pair of skis or a tennis racket, he can keep us in his hold. Persistent, Christian. And lastly, it's bold. Consistent, persistent, and it's bold. You notice a number of times Paul says, pray that, that I may fearlessly. Pray that I may fearlessly. Listen, it's imperative at the outset that you come to terms with this simple life-changing truth. God is for you, Christian. God is for you. God is for you. If you don't believe that, then you will pray small, timid prayers. If you do believe it, then you will pray big, bold prayers. God is for you. God is for you. God is for you. 
We often get into our own little world when we pray, focusing just on our families, just on our finances, just on our struggles. Everything that has to do with our own sphere of interest. And that's okay because we have a gracious enough God who hears our prayers. But I feel like a lot of times what we are really asking for God is to arrange our lives in such a way that our lives will be easier, more comfortable, and more fulfilling. Christian, bold prayers honor God and God honors bold prayers. Bold prayers honor God and God honors bold prayers. Psalm 2.8, only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. Think about that prayer. God, give us the nations, God. Give us the nations, God, as your inheritance. If you and I only had a larger vision of what God wanted to accomplish in and through us, some of our problems would cease to exist because they would cease to be important. Christian, pray with boldness. Pray with tenacity. Christian, ask God to part the Red Sea. Christian, ask God to make the sun stand still. Christian, ask God to float an iron axe head. Pray bold prayers, church. Pray tenacious prayers. Pray persistent prayers. If we were to be like the book of Acts, we would pray that our entire city would experience a renewal and experience a shalom of God. Can I get an amen? If we prayed bold prayers, we would pray that our church family would be unified and there will be a revival in the midst of our church. If we would pray bold prayers, we would pray that marriages would be healed and that strongholds would come down and barriers would be broken. Pray bold prayers because God is for you. So finally, you and I can't do this alone. We can't battle alone. This is the last word I want to leave you with. We can't do what I talked about alone. We battle together. I said at the onset of the sermon series that all the verbs in this passage are what? Plural. They're written to groups of people. He's not writing to individuals, but to groups of people. The passage applies to individuals, but presupposes that that individual is a part of a larger kingdom community. Do you understand that? Let me show you a verse that you and I have been taught, okay? You and I have been taught in the wrong context. Anybody familiar with this passage? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Anybody familiar with that passage? How many of you for your entire Christian life thought of that passage as applying to you individually? All of us. All of us. That's why sometimes we look at this and go, wait a minute, but there are times when I feel like I was tempted beyond what I can bear. There are times when I feel like there was no way out. This passage, this verse is written not to individuals. It's to a group. It's to a group. This is written to a group of people. The you here is in the plural, not in the singular. The problem, of course, is that in the English language, we don't have a distinct second person plural pronoun. We use the word you for both singular and plural. This is why English is so confusing, by the way, for second English second language people like me. You is plural. Now, in the South, they discover that a way to get around that is to say what? Y'all, right? And somewhere, 
in parts of Chicago. We discovered also you can say use. Just put an S at the end of you. Use, right? Problem is that that's not considered proper English, so it doesn't find its way into the Bible translations. But the Greek here, Bible study students, check this out. The Greek here uses the word sue, the Greek word sue, and that's always you in the individual sense. The Greek word humeis is always in the you in the plural. And all the verbs here in the what? In the second person plural here is what? It's not sue, it's what? Humeis, humeis. So to reread this passage correctly, this is what it would say. First Corinthians 13, no temptation has overtaken you all except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you all be tempted beyond what you all can bear. But when you all are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you all can endure it. Church, this is paradigm shifting. The assumption of this passage that when an individual is being tested, in some sense, what? The whole community is being tested. And the promise of God is that when that individual is a part of this community tested, God will not allow the testing to go beyond the strength of the community. You all are being tested. You all will overcome it. The assumption of this passage is that we actually stand or fall, what? Together. Together. God never intended for us to resist temptation on our own. God never intended believers to endure anything on their own. In the New Testament, you know this, I preach on this every single week. To follow Jesus is to belong to a community of people who follow Jesus. To take up the cross means that we are part of a community that is taking up the cross. The New Testament doesn't even have a concept of an individual Christian who is not part of a kingdom community. The assumption is that you are a follower of Jesus. You belong to a community of people who are following Jesus together. Listen, to be clear, listen to me, to be clear. As individuals, we are each responsible for any temptation that we choose to fall into, okay? So this isn't about, you know, I, 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 I'm going to just blame other people. This passage and others don't give you a way to shirk your personal responsibility. What, but what this passage is saying is implying that if you are out there on your own, if you are out there trying to resist temptation on your own, then you're really on your own. But if you're going through stuff in relationship to others, if you're going through stuff connected to a larger community that is called to resist temptation together, then the promise of 1 Corinthians 10, 13 applies. The strength of the temptation is not beyond your own individual strength, but the strength of the community. Your strength is found in the strength of the community. That is where power to resist ultimately lies. It's safety in numbers. Let me, can I just illustrate this for you? Think about the last time you gave in to temptation. Do you think that you would have fallen for that temptation if you had several kingdom people right there with you? Or what if, as you were being tempted, you knew that you had access to call a group of people who you knew would be right there with you and for you? Or how many of us would struggle with the kinds of temptation habits if we had a group of people, kingdom community, that you shared your struggles with early on, your marriage struggles, your addictions, your issues, early on and given them permission to keep you accountable? How many of us would struggle with these temptations if we had an army of Christians, kingdom people, that are constantly praying for us? Do you understand what this passage is saying, church? We all 
battle together. You're going to hear a voice that says, you can't tell anybody. It's none of their business. It's your issue that is a lie. That is a deception from the enemy. That is a lie from the pit of hell. Satan lives in the land of secrecy and isolation. God lives in the land of truth and what? Light. Bring it out in the open. Let your kingdom community walk with you. The truth is that we were created for community. We are safe for community. And we do life in community. The biblical truth is that you are going to struggle resisting temptation, growing spiritually, if you are not embedded, connected to, doing life with kingdom people in community. In this war, the worst place to be is alone in the battlefield. You have a platoon of people with you and for you. We battle together. We fall our victories together. It's the community that can overcome. It's the community that has a strength to resist. We are called and equipped and empowered to battle together. <sighs> Let me end with this. I had a brother, a dear, dear brother of mine, essentially write this, a short sort of testimonial as he reflected on this sermon series. I don't need to give a whole lot of context. I'll just read it, and I think you'll see why. I wanted to end this sermon series with this. I accepted Jesus as my savior in high school, but I didn't understand what a deep relationship with Jesus looked like. And putting on the armor of God was purely metaphorical to me. The evangelical Christian community was a facade outside of a few close friends. And when I hit late high school and college, I didn't realize it, but I was isolated, alone in my so-called faith. Through college and the majority of my 20s, I allowed the enemy to build a formidable fortress of secrecy and isolation around me. I gave in to binge drinking, pornography, rampant promiscuous sex, and a myriad of destructive behaviors. It was a dark time. I was conflicted, shameful, and angry. The war was seemingly lost for me. But God. <laughs> However, Christ had laid claim on my life. Over the last 10 years, especially the last five, he has gently guided me back to him. He led me to my wife. He led me to this beautiful kingdom community. He led me to pray the prayers that I needed to pray over and over again because I asked the Spirit to teach me. And then listen to this. One of the biggest ways he's led me back to him is by leading me to a group of people that know what it is to do battle. And not just one battle, but battle after battle after battle after battle. They are here to fight the battle with me. They are the people that pray immediately when a text, is, text for help is sent. They are the people who literally came over to my house in the middle of the night, laid hands on me and my wife when all hope seemed to be lost. They are the people that have held me accountable to speak truth to me, no matter how painful it is to hear or say. They laugh with me. They sit in silence with me. They hold me accountable and they weep with me. I believe with all my heart that God can and will break down the most formidable fortresses and strongholds. I have literally seen it. I have seen God do it in my life and the life of many others. Yes, he can do it with his own might, but he also designed us to work with him in community with others. I won't lie. There are many times 
The tearing down of those fortresses and strongholds has been incredibly painful, but his strength is there and it is so worth it. Every gut-wrenching confession, every tough truth, every tear, and it's so much better with people around you, supporting you, loving you. But we have to choose to break the isolation. We have to choose to let people in. The most beautiful part of all this is that the people of new community are there to meet you. Transparency breaks battle lines. Vulnerability is a weapon against dark forces. Speak the temptation to someone and pray. We have to pray that prayer. God, I want to stay the way I am, but I want you more. Say that and mean it, and he will do the rest. Prayer, prayer has power. That is true power. God's holy, unbounded, universe-creating power. It is more powerful than all the darkest things that Satan could throw at you. Be fearless in the midst of the battle because he has already won the war. He won it for me, and he won it for you. Let's pray together, church. Oh, you are a good, good father. A good, good heavenly father. Thank you for the work in this brother. Finish the work that you have begun in him. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Father, make us a praying people. Not people who talk about prayer. Not people who say that they believe in prayer. Not people who even teach and preach on prayer. No, Father, make us people who actually pray consistently, persistently, and boldly. We pray boldly. Give us the nations, Father. Transform this city, God. Grant us courage to give our lives for the sake of your name. Rend the heavens and come down. Open the floodgates of heaven, O God. We humbly come and seek your face. Heal our nation. Heal our city. Heal our marriages. Heal us. We need you desperately. You alone are our hope, our salvation, our shield, our anchor in times of trouble. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. In the name of the powerful, powerful name of Jesus.